Hi, everybody. I'm Leslie Allen, and you are listening to Brothers on Tennis. Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? This is your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And listeners, we've got such a wonderful, wonderful interview for you today. We have got one of the pioneers of our sport, one of the ladies that I know I, when you're talking about your Serena's and your Coco Golf's, there wouldn't be any of them without this particular lady. And Bryce, I know when we, you and I were talking about this and we were saying, yo, we cannot believe we have this guest on our show, man. Just so excited about it, bro. Give me your thoughts on our guest that we have today. I'm very excited because I think any person that follows a sport, uh, you remember the people that you saw when you were a kid. Right. Right. And and being an African-American male where I didn't see a lot of us right. playing the sport. Um, you know, you you know, Althea Gibson was kind of before my time. Uh, Arthur Ashe was, I was very young, really young. you know. Yep. Uh, but I really took up the sport in the late 70s, early 80s. And so when you're talking about the African-Americans that you were seeing at that time, you were seeing your Leslie Allens, you were seeing when Xena first came up, uh, somebody that, I don't know, it's like she dropped off the face of the earth. I remember when Camille Benjamin made it to like the semifinals of the French Open when uh -huh. I was young. Right. Um, but there's kind of like a group of names that you saw back then that were really the faces of African-American tennis. Right. And Leslie Allen was one of those names. I mean, Leslie Allen was one of the uh, pioneers, not only on the court, but actually off the court as well. And mm. so I want to make sure that we talk about her contributions to the game outside of her actually playing the sport as well. So with all of that, we're not going to sit here and talk about her like she's not in the room. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Go so, ahead. Your own. <laughs> hey. Let's Allen, welcome to Brothers on Tennis. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Oh, it's just so awesome to have you on here, Leslie. We are just such big fans of yours and, and up front. Thank you for everything that you have done, not only for African-Americans, but for the sport of tennis. I mean, we are just so, so very excited to talk with you today. And I guess first and foremost, we just want to ask you, you know, about your background. Just kind of go into an, an, uh, kind of your upbringing and, and what brought you into the game of tennis as an African-American, young African-American female. So I, I think when people hear my accolades and my the things that I achieved in tennis, yeah, they get an image of one thing. But then when I tell my actual story, they're like, wait, what? How did that happen? So when I was born, well, first of all, I have never known a day in my life where tennis wasn't a part of it. Nice. Okay. And that is because, like, if, if people want to say, when was the first time you got a tennis racket? I never knew not having a tennis racket because actually my Twitter profile picture is a picture of me at nine months old in the crib with the tennis racket. Uh, <laughs> nice. True story. And it's because my mother played ATA tennis, which was the black version of the USTA tennis of those days. And that would have right. been in the late 50s. I'm saying how old I am, but whatever I am. Um, <laughs> I, you know, anybody can Google it. Um, so she loved the sport. And uh, as a, as a, uh, I guess as a new parent, she had this thing called a baby book, which everybody gets, which shows, you know, first step, first lost tooth, first prom, first whatever. You know, you, you demarcate all these first. So within this baby book that my mother had, and now, mind you, everybody in this book was white. There wasn't a personal color. <laughs> right. My life was going to be chronicled via the white world because that's all black people had. You, did, you didn't have baby books that had black people in it. Right. Um, like you do now. So there was a blonde chick in that book with a ponytail, sun visor, her little wooden racket, her little crisp shorts. And above that blonde chick's head, my mother wrote, Leslie, question mark. Mm -hmm. All See, right. right. So I still have that book with that picture in, and I sometimes bring it up when I talk about the need for diversity and inclusion. Because even though that was a blonde girl, white chick, I had to, my mother had to somehow figure out how that could be my daughter. Anyway, so I grew up um, with an, a parent, my mother who played, she was a single parent. I mean, my parents were divorced. So she played 
ATA tournaments. So my weekends consisted of, um, we were living in, I guess, DC at the time, but consisted of going to the park um, in DC, it was Banica or Turkey Thicket. Um, and just as a kid, that was normal. You go to the park, your mom plays tennis, you go to the playground and I play. Mm-hmm. And that was the ATA tennis world that I grew up in. And there were kind of a few categories of people. You had parents who were good tennis players. My mother was one, so I was Sarah's daughter. Um, You had parents who had young people that were playing in the same ATA junior tournaments, or you had coaches or or kids that were being trained to play in. I wasn't in any of those categories. I was the outlier who was always off wandering, doing my own thing. So I was never known to the ATA community um, as, um, as a tennis player. I was always known as Sarah's daughter. Um, And the way ATA tournaments were structured, you had the local ones. When I lived in Cleveland, it was Tri-City, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. On the West Coast, it was Pacific Coast Championship. I don't know what the three towns were in in LA, I don't know, Oakland, I don't know who else. But my, and then all of that culminated in, in the nationals. And so by growing up in that tennis world, I knew the entire lexicon. I took tennis lessons and knew how to hit the ball. I heard the horror stories about players who tried to integrate into US LTA tournaments. Um, I also saw how people lived and died with every ball that Arthur hit. Mm -hmm. That was just the environment that I was in. And I also married that with our neighborhood was a predominantly middle-class black neighborhood in DC, um, but none of my friends played tennis. So they said, why do you want to play that white sport? So you were mm-hmm. almost embarrassed you were leaving the house going to play tennis or to be homophobic, people would say, why do you play that sissy sport? So wow. those were two other reasons to step away from tennis. And as a young girl, I just wanted a chance to have to play a, play a sport, be on a team. And tennis was not interesting to me at all. So, so that just give that lens of those first years from the time I was born till I was, I mean, I even went to Dr. Johnson's camp, hated it. Um, I wasn't the traveling kid um, until the seventies. That was sort of my purview of, 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 of tennis. So, Leslie, can I interrupt you there for a second? Uh, I'm I'm very intrigued to hear why you hated Dr. Johnson's uh, camp. Well, I I wasn't the Dr. Johnson was the person who all of the African American play young junior players would go to his place in Lynchburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. which house and one court and then he would take the good ones on the road in the South and play tournaments. So I wasn't in the category of the good one. I was, you know, my mother sent me down there. I didn't want to go, but she convinced me that I wanted to go saying they had a ball machine. That was what was interesting to me. And I don't know, I, I guess I thought it was going to be like a, the robot on the Jetsons was going to be. <laughs> you know, that was like a 10 or 11 year old mind. That, that's right. what I and I got down there and it was something that looked like it was a baker's rack that oscillated and a ball eventually popped out. Um, so because one, excelling in tennis was not my dream. Um, it was hot. I was in the South. It was the first place I'd been called a nigga. Um, and, you know, you do what your parents do and say, tell you when you're, when you're that, that age. So I was just there and I knew I wasn't... Um, there was a hierarchy in, in even ATA junior tennis. And I knew I was at the bottom of the ladder. So I was not Juan Farrow. I was not going to be traveling to any tournaments because I was not ready for prime time. Um, so there you go. So that's so, so hated it might have been a strong word. I mean, the first year we I stayed at his house, his grandkids were there. They were my age as well. You know, we were on the third floor of an un, of a a house that didn't have air conditioning. Well, I didn't have air conditioning at home either, but Lynchburg, Virginia in the dead of summer. And then the next year that I went, we probably were, stayed with a family about a mile, who knows, away. And we walked every day to the courts. So it, it wasn't like the lap of luxury. We weren't, um, we had everything that we needed. And if 
I had been of the mindset to want to play, it would have been a great thing. Wow. And so, Leslie, tell me this, and this is Isaac here. Um, mm -hmm. When, when at, at what point did, did that kind of flip for you? Because, I mean, you've gone on to play on the tour and do some wonderful things, of course. Um, it, at, at, at any point, did that kind of distaste, if you will, for the sport kind of flip and, you'd be like, and you were like, hey, this, you know, I, I'm here. I, I, I can do this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it did, actually. I mean, there was always the underlying dream of wanting to compete. Yeah. And on a team. And, you know, like I would go visit a friend in Florida for the summer and and not and my tennis racket stayed in my suitcase, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I went backpacking and building a cross country ski touring trail probably between my junior and senior year of high school. Again, no tennis involved. But by the 1970s, mid 70s or, or somewhere in the 70s, several things happened. Title nine, which mm -hmm. meant girls had opportunity in sports and they should have the same opportunity. Um, the um, World Team Tennis um, and the WTA Tour. So at that time I was living with my dad and stepmother in Ohio. I was a senior at Glenville High School. And so the tennis boom happened, right? It was also the tennis boom. Um, Arthur hadn't won Wimbledon yet, but everybody and their brother was going out and getting their head tennis racket, looking like Arthur, wearing their tennis clothes, and just, they it was like the tennis boom. And I'm like, hold on, I know tennis. Y'all getting all excited about this. I've been playing this all my life. Dug up in my closet, got the same racket out that I probably had when I was 12, same strings probably, and just started, you know, at every park, I mean, in every town, there is a park, used to be, where black people played. So I was now in Cleveland, it was Rockefeller Park. And so I would go and hit and play there just to be, and, and I was probably better than a lot of people because I'd had that experience. And I think an additional catalyst of when it flipped was, it, it wasn't as if the flip was, oh, I now love tennis. It was, could I become good enough to play on a college team? I'm a high school senior now, but this is what I'm thinking. Additionally, um, my high school uh, happened to be about 100% black, urban, not deep hood, but slightly hood adjacent. But football, baseball, and track were king at the school. Tennis was, you know, not even a thought, but they did have a boys tennis team, which I tried out for, which then subsequent teams would not let me compete when I would show up for the matches, which meant I sued because I had found out that Title IX existed. So I was ostracized, but you know, that if they had let me play, y'all probably wouldn't be talking to me. Cause if wow. they just, come on out, Leslie, you know, play your little high school, you're going to college at Carnegie Mellon, you know, thank you. But when they said, no, you can't do it. Oh no, wait, you're not gonna let me play? Oh, we're going to court, so. That lit that so, fire. So, so that, that was it. So then it became an incremental thing. It was always driven by how good could I be? Um, it, it, and I would not even deign to really say out loud that I wanted to be a professional tennis player. This is when I'm a freshman in college playing on Carnegie Mellon's team, which was the hit and giggle set, because I didn't have game. I didn't have the kind of game that people could say, oh, in a few years' time, she could be a professional or one of the best in the game. So I just worked, well, all right, Carnegie Mellon, that was good. But maybe eventually I could get to a school where I could combine academics and athletics. Because um, obviously Carnegie Mellon was all about the academics. Right. So yes. now that kind of transitions us to, you ended up going to USC, correct? I went to five colleges. Oh, Did wow. You? Okay. Oh, tell us. Yeah. You're the tea, Leslie. Come on now. When you hear my story, you're like, wait, what? So, so I told you that I was going to the hood adjacent high school. Right. So my parents graduated a year early, but I would have been, I don't know, 15 or 16. And I felt like that was too young to go off to college. So the deal was, because I'd finished all my credits, because I'd been, I'd been lucky enough to go to private schools. But so I was like, could I just go to the neighborhood school? I already know how to read. I already know how to write. Can I just like hang out with my friends? You know, so they said yes. 
but you can go to community college and take some classes. Um, so that's what I did as a senior in high school, which then I went to uh, Carnegie Mellon. And then I really wanted to, to try and go somewhere to play tennis full time. So at an ATA tournament, the nationals between my freshman and sophomore year, I met the coach at Texas Southern and he said, we could start a woman's team and we can give you a scholarship. It may take the spring semester. So the fall semester of my sophomore year, I went to Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City, okay. where I played number one for their tennis team. And um, they were across the street from Midtown Tennis Club, where I played tennis. And my coach, Bob Ryland, was a pro. And the tennis team coach from FIT also hit there, so he knew me. So I did that for a semester. Went off to Texas Southern in Houston, where they were supposed to um, start the women's team. Um, and if you speak to any black tennis player that's been any time in Texas, I'm sure they've told you about running the bayou. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I ran the bayou. <laughs> I got in shape. I ran the bayou. And then I was in San Diego for the ATA Nationals in San Diego. It was now my going into my junior year, and I opted not to go back to, to Texas Southern and look for an opportunity where there was a girl, a woman's team. And you know, the nationals are in August. So after the, after the, the nationals, which I did not win, because if you all know the player D Williams, I don't know if you know. Her. Oh, actually, I I, I'm not familiar with D Williams. Well, she's a, she's a, she's a legendary park player who came to the net on anything and everything. And <laughs> okay. I was back there at the baseline thinking, gosh, she's so rude. She just come to the net. Because <laughs> 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 played baseline tennis. And in California, this is in the 70s, they came to the net on anything. And she came right. to the net and kicked my tail. So I didn't win the ATA Nationals, but I had the nerve to walk onto USC's campus and talk my way into the school, um, you, which baby. I did. And I played at the bottom of their ladder my junior and senior year. So there you go. Man, talk about a road. And that's <laughs> in college. Oh, my gosh. Come on, Leslie. My goodness. That right? is tremendous. You know, but when they hear NCAA champion or, or went to USC, they cannot even imagine that backstory. No, not, not at, all. at all. Not at but all. I, I like to share it because in increments, dreams can come true. At any moment in the progress, you know, even just getting to USC, that was a victory and playing and being in a place with some of the top players in the country who were, they were beginning to talk about, or they were actually going out and playing on some of the pro tournaments while they were in school. And then once my senior year, I started beating them when we had practice matches, then I'm like, well, y'all talking about it, I might as well do that too. <laughs> right, right. I mean, my goodness, talk about just resilience. I mean, that is incredible. Love that story, Leslie. At, at what point, I guess, so, you know, so now you've rounded out, you're at USC, you're playing, you're starting to beat some of those folks. At what point did it kind of flip in your mind where you were like, okay, I'm, I'm, I think I might be ready to, to get on the tour. Can you kind of walk us through how that thought process went for you? Okay. So a couple things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a couple things. Um, at the time when I was in college, I did not have a good a good serve. And sort of the way to develop the good serve was to stand with my feet together, toss the ball up, and have a half swing. So I served that way my entire junior year. My senior year, I was allowed to stand, you know, with my feet apart and have a full swing, right? Okay. So I was beginning to develop a swing. I did not play doubles because I would not come to the net. Got it. <laughs> um, but it's still serving volley. So, um, so what happened when I, after I graduated and I came home and my coach Bob Ryland said, "Okay, I know what you need to do next." And so I'm willing to do things to get to where I need to be because when I was in LA, every weekend or every Saturday, I would take two buses to go to a place called Hollywood Indoor to hit on the ball machine, practice my serve, or hit with people and get paid two or $3 an hour. And nice. so anybody 
on the on the on the west coast in LA, you don't do you don't do public transportation, and if you do, there's a stigma attached to it. But I was from New York, so we rode buses and trains all the time. So I would spend an hour and a half one way and an hour and a half back. So when things are presented, I look at them as, as an opportunity. And my coach, Bob Ryland, said to me, and I can still see him, God rest his soul, standing in the doorway of my mother's apartment, I mean, outside her room. We were just all in there together. And he says, I know what you need to do. You need to go to Australia. Wow. What? And I think <laughs> that I had won the ATA Nationals that year. Yeah, I, I think I had won the ATA Nationals. I may be a little bit confused. But anyway, he said, because you can go there and get some good training, get some good competition. And so, you know, it, it, ain't, it ain't cheap to go to Australia. <laughs> no, it's not at all. <laughs> Even today. So, like, you know, but my mom and my family was the kind like, all right, that's what we're going to do. Now let's get a plan to do it. So um, they had a fund, Pyramid Tennis had a fundraiser and people gave their 25 and 50 and $100 for, to raise the money so I could go down there. And um, I guess it was after I had won the ATA Nationals because by winning the ATA Nationals, you were given a spot to play in the qualifying of the U.S. Open. And so I um, played in the qualifying of the U.S. Open. And so you have to realize that oftentimes when I would turn up at tournaments, clearly nobody had ever heard of me. They had not been tracking my progress through the juniors because I didn't play juniors. I never had a ranking. So they had never even, never even heard of me. A little bit from USC, maybe. But I was at the bottom of the ladder, so they weren't even paying attention. So, but I remember some of the young Australian players and officials were watching me play against uh, one of the best French players. I didn't win the match, but they must have seen something and said, you know, you should come down to Australia. We have a women's circuit down there. And so kind of the culmination of my coach saying, you need to go, this invitation coming, um, I went down there. And I was unranked, and I um, played in probably four small, 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 small satellite tournaments, but did well and had good practice and just good work ethic and good time, and which culminated in when the tour made its way to um, the Australian to Australia for the Australian Open, and then played in the qualifying of those events. So by virtue of that, I I ended up. Uh, coming home with a world ranking of 177. Wow, so that is that tremendous. Incredible. But just hey, Leslie. Spending three months in Australia was a, was, a, was, a, was a wow, that's what I can say. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, is coming from the States, having kind of traversed, you know, all those different paths to get to that point, what, was, what did you feel like when you were in Australia, just as an African-American female? How were you received, and did it feel different to you than your, you know, your home state and country? Um, wow, that's a really good question. There were, it was kind of two ways. One, as a tennis player, um, you know, because the press met me and everything, and I'm like, I haven't done anything, but that was just how they set it up that, you know, this American was coming down there. So the very first night that I was there, I went to dinner with the host family daughter, who was older than me, and her boyfriend, who was way older than both of us. And um, he, we, as we sat at the table, he sat across from me, and he said to me, we haven't had another American Negress here since <laughs> Marita Redondo. So we were in a Chinese restaurant. Okay. So Okay, so how are we going to deal with this? <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm thinking of all those 25 and 30 and $40 checks people wrote to send me there for three months, and I'm not even here 24 hours. So I'm like, so for, in my mind, I thought, first thing, Marita is Filipino, so let's get that right. Um, and Negress, is that like Tigress? Is that <laughs> like an animal? Is that what you call me here? Right. So, I don't think I said any of that, but that moment is in my mind, which meant like, okay, take a breath. 
you need to find out. So for, so that when I was there, I was the American Negress, Leslie Allen, um, because that was the, the terminology that was being used. The other thing was um, it had not been long that African-Americans were allowed to emigrate. Is that what you say? Yeah, to, to Australia. So there were not a lot there. And there was one particular singer, American singer, I think her name was Diane something or other maybe. So I became, if someone saw me sort of as a slight, they might yell out, hey, Diane, you know, mm. which was sort of like the universal name for a black woman. But the families, they could not have been nicer. And in that moment, I realized, oh, I don't know much because you know, they would ask, like, how many black people are there in the United States or, you know, like statistics and or I'd have to dispel um, statements that they might. And I'm like, oh, I need some information because I need to have some ammunition so I can shut any craziness down. I need to be I need to up my game. That's right. Um, so they didn't know about me and I learned about them. So it was a learning on both. And I needed to I needed to be as folks say now, I needed to be more woke. So, um, <laughs> right. but it was, um, I never really had, um, I, I had more difficult times in the United States or experiences than I did um, in Australia. And you know, and that's sad because that has been a common thing that we have heard from players of right. color. Right. Um, mm -hmm about their experience between the United States and, and other places. Mm -hmm. it, it's sad, but yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can right away tell if somebody is an American or not as they interact with you on the, on the tour generally in the, in, the, in the early years, you know. You, you could tell if it was a European person speaking to you or if it was an American just right. based on what baggage they brought to the table or what stereotypes they brought to the table. So Leslie, how was it back then on the tour for an African-American woman? Because, I mean, we, we assume it's better now, <laughs> but, um, you know, it definitely was a different time and we had kind of a different stature in the game at that time. What, what was that like? You know, what was it really interesting and I feel really fortunate that I did not play junior tennis and don't have all of the scars and road burns from uh, those who would be my contemporaries that played junior tennis because the entire time, most of my competitive life was at a professional level. So there were definite rules and regulations. Um, so I didn't have to deal with draw fixing and giving wrong information on when I was playing or anything like that. And because it was the, um, the era of Billie Jean, of the original nine, they had now stopped playing. Billie was still playing, Billie Jean King, but um, she instilled in my generation of players that you have a responsibility to the game, to be involved in the politics, put your best effort out there, interact with the media, interact with the fans, interact with the sponsors. So as a professional athlete, I knew those were five things that I needed to do. So in trying to put the best product out there or interacting with the media, I was a story. I had not won anything, but I was a novelty. So I would anticipate that in every city that I went to, they were going to write an article about me. Not only was my backstory interesting, my mother was also working in the theater. So that was like a two-time story because neither one of us fit into the box of an African-American in some people's minds, you know, if they're going to have a stereotype or how somebody got involved in the sport or what they're, what they're doing at work, you know, or where they went to school. So, right. so um, you know, most of the issues that I might have had would have been, um, you know, one time in, um, we were in a small town in England. It was pre-Wimbledon. The, I think its city was Bosom or something. And it was a crazy place because it flooded every day when the tide came in. But anyway. Wow. Um, so, and you have to realize that um, the generation that I played, there was no internet. And then initially there was no Walkman. So you didn't have a headphone on you. 
to block right. out anybody or anybody. If music was played, everybody heard it. Um, there was no cell phone. So the biggest and most difficult thing was when you left home, you left home. You were gone. It was right. like, we're quarantined now. We're stuck in the house. We were quarantined in the white world. Yep. Didn't have a chance to to interface out or to check back in because a long distance phone call was expensive. Mm -hmm. Right. Dollars and dollars and dollars. So if you called, you were just going to call briefly, maybe at the end of a week to say you've gotten to the next place or something like that. You weren't like texting people, calling people, hitting them up on Instagram. There was none of that. So you we were isolated. So those players of color, we kind of hung together or Americans, we hung together. So that was the most difficult thing. So in saying that, this one particular town, um, and and there was not a lot of prize money, so we we stayed in bed and breakfasts, we stayed um, at pensions, you know, we rented flats and piled everybody in there together. What you know, it, we weren't in the lap of luxury. So this one particular family, when the tournament came to town, this is when the era when families would um, house people, and so this family said. Um, oh, well, we have room for three ladies, you know, because the pitch is you've got players from all over the world that are going to come. And so that's just an interesting cultural exchange. And so people sign up. So when this particular family signed up, I can guarantee you they never thought they were going to get who they got. Right. The neighbors let us in because they weren't, the, the homeowner wasn't back from their vacation. So there we were now being led in the house by neighbors. The neighbor can't call and say, Susie, I need to warn you, such and such and such and such, because there was no cell phone, right? So the right. only neighbor, the homeowner was going to know who was in their house was when they came home and opened the door. So wow. they came home and opened the door, and we had been playing a board game in the living room. And so we stood up, and... Um, First person said, hi, I'm Andrea Buchanan. I'm from Los Angeles. Next one said, hi, I'm Diane Morrison. I'm from Los Angeles. And I said, hi, I'm Leslie Allen. I'm from New York. And the host, who's the owner of the house, she looked at me, looked at us and said, oh, but you speak English so well. Oh, to you, Leslie? To us in general. Oh, in general. Okay. okay. Oh, but you speak English so well. And I said, well, we are from the United States of America. That could be why. But in that <laughs> moment, she, first of all, never imagined she was going to have three African-American women players. Right. And so she told on herself and her stereotype because she could not even process the information that these three women's, women stood up to greet them, extended hands, shook hands, said who they were and who they were from, like any well-trained, well-mannered person would. So it was always a little something like that, you know, housing might get canceled or the husband comes home and realizes one of the players that stand in his house is black and suddenly his lupus kicks up and we all got to leave the next day. You know? Oh, and, wow. You know, so it's, it was stuff, you know, so that was on the playing side, but, you know, that was, yeah. that's, that was, but that was just, you know, we talk a lot about microaggressions that um, people of color feel. And so it was interesting because recent, maybe a few months ago, I wrote an article and Martina was just weighing in on it a little bit. And, and I was like, yeah, these things happen. And she said, I had no idea you had to, it was almost like, not you, Leslie, like, not you, you're not, you're not like, that shouldn't happen to you. You're, you're a right. special kind of black. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was almost what it was sounding like. And I'm like, no, Martina. I had to deal with that just like everybody else. And, uh, and I, part of me was thinking, just imagine if I didn't, I might have been able to really beat your tail. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you know what? That's a perfect segue to, I want to talk about some of your successes on court. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you talk about that, but please make sure you do two things. Number one, we definitely want to hear about that 1981 Avon Championships in Detroit. Yes. But okay. I specifically want you to talk about this because I've heard you talk about it before, and I don't know if our listeners are aware of the story of what happened in that French Open mixed doubles final mm. with Elliot Telsha. I may talk about it. I'll see. Depends on how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, depends. Keep going. 
So I'm gonna turn it over to you now. <laughs> uh, what did you want me? So you wanted me your, to talk about Troy? Yeah, your your successes on the court. Yeah, I mean, how you got to number seventeen in the world. Um. Well, I uh, it was a a slow progress, right? I mean, it, it was a progression, and and I think here's the crazy thing for me because I mentioned how I had been a baseline player, but and how I had to practice my serve. I, be, I eventually developed one of the best serves in the game and one of the best serve volley games. But imagine any professional athlete in their first three or four seasons learning how to hit the particular shot. So imagine an NBA player learning how to hit his three-point shot and mm -hmm. then he's known for his three-point shot. What? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to do that when you're a kid. So the fact that I was still learning as I was playing on the tour was one of the reasons why I was able to have success because one, I learned and then I could do better versus some people that had already reached their peak. Um, but um, I remember <clears throat> in Detroit in particular, because like I say, there's always some kinds of, um, of um, microaggressions that you feel. So uh, there was a, a practice club where all of the athletes for the tournament were playing. And down at the end of the bank of indoor courts, courts you know, I, I trained with one of the pros there who was a friend, Michael Reese from uh, Detroit, who I knew from Texas Southern. So <clears throat> he was coaching me. It's another player. Mima Yasevic was being coached by one of the other uh, pros. So they kind of had their rivalry like, which of their charges, me or Mima, were going to do better in the tournament. So I had a training session with Michael, um, and I was coming out. And you know how <clears throat> at indoor court, sometimes you have to walk down some steps to get to the court, mm -hmm. like in your own little tunnel there. So I was coming up, and I was going down. And this woman said to me, you know what? You are very good. You should think about playing tournaments. I'm like, I don't say anything. I'm like, basically, I'm like, okay. You know, but again, why don't you assume that I'm part of the people playing in Cobo Hall in Detroit, one of the professional athletes? Why do you, white lady, have to tell me I'm good and I should think about playing tournaments? You've mm -hmm. just told me that in your mind, you don't see black women playing in tournaments. So I just let that go. So <laughs> later on, and this is one of Mary Carrillo's kind of favorite stories, we're at Kobo Arena and I'm standing like in that walkway where you come out of the tunnel and you can go to the courts or you or you can go sit on the sit on the on the you know better seats. So I'm standing there, I'm talking to Mary, and person comes up to to me, not her, and says, Do you work here? Like with their ticket stubs out, like I'm gonna be their usher. Wow. <laughs> and I said, Yes <laughs> And so they looked very confused because I didn't, um, I didn't um, show them their seat. So at that particular tournament, uh, um, it happened to be by the time I got to the, in, in the first round, I was playing against a South African and there was a fat man sitting in the stands. And every time I missed a ball or lost a point, he applauded loud, loudly. So this is a 5,000 seat arena. It's probably nine o'clock in the night, in the morning. Nobody is there. So it's really obnoxious. Wow. So instead of getting mad and losing my mind, I said, um, okay, I'm going to shut him up. I'm not going to make unforced errors. If my opponent hits a good shot, then I'll by all means clap. But I'm not going to give you anything to clap about. Right. And so just by changing my mindset, I got out of my own way and I won that first match. And then from there, I beat... Uh, Mima, who, Yasevic, who I beat Ruzic, um, I think I beat Barbara Potter, I beat Hannah in the finals. And um, it was just one of those things where I just took it one at a time. Right. And I didn't really understand how big of a deal it was going to be until the morning of the final, I opened the newspaper and I was all over the front page of the, of the newspaper, not the sports, but the newspaper, you know, set to make history. And I remember closing it 
and like, oh, I can't read that. And so I went on into the match. I'd beaten Hana before. And on match point, I served. I came in. Um, she sliced a backhand ball down the line. And having lived through many bad calls, I when it landed, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen now. And so I stopped and I turned around to look down the line <clears throat> at the lines person to see what they were going to do. And it was a brother on the line. All right. <laughs> All right. Come on. And he put his arm out. Out. <laughs> and I looked up in the chair at the referee, I mean, at the umpire to see what they were going to say. And they said, I saw the ball out. And I walked to the net. Hannah, Hannah was already at the net. Shook her hands. And like they say, the rest was history. Wow. Well, I want to awesome. be very clear about something for our listeners because you've just referred to her as Hannah. Um, you're talking about Hannah Monlikova. Yes. So <laughs> I don't I don't want the listeners to think, oh, whoever this Hannah was. I mean, you yeah. took out Hannah Monlikova in, in the final, so that was a very I, strong win. I, yes. I, I open that year. She was like she was like three or four in the world. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Oh, what an amazing win. I tell you what, Leslie, I, you know, I, what impressed me the most, I, like I said, I, 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 what you said about, again, the fat man in the role trying to, you know, just, just being just rude. And the mm -hmm. fact that you were of the mindset of, I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to tolerate your silliness. I'm going to let my actions speak for what I'm putting out here. I think that right there, that's what I'm talking about. And that's what listeners need to need to really key in on is don't let people drag you down. Don't let them pull you down to some old, you know, some 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 bad level. Let your actions speak for it. And and that will take you so far. That's so awesome, Leslie. And the second part you know, the, came from, oh. if I had to say where that came from, that's growing up in the ATA. Because for mm -hmm. me, it was a nurturing environment. And when I did turn to want to play, everybody was so supportive and helpful. But also it was from Dr. Johnson, Dr. J in Lynchburg, where you knew the traveling team or anybody knew no foolishness right. because you might mess it up for the next person. So that was, and, and, and each match that I played, every time I hit a ball, I could reflect on those conversations that I was in the car being the observer, listen to the grown folks talk about Arthur's match with whomever and what should have happened and, and all of the, you know, Bonnie Logan, Ann Coger, John Lucas, the Glass family, Juan Farrow, you know, what they should have done, what they didn't do. So I knew what that felt like. So I always had that pressure of having to, as they say, do right. Well, and you know what? There's another lesson in there, too, because what if you listen to that story, you can't control what other people do. That's right. You can control what you do. So she couldn't control whether or not that got what he did or not, but she could control whether he got an opportunity. That's right. To do that. That was within her um, you know, powers. So that, that's a great, great story. Now, you know what? I'm going to step back and sit here and enjoy listening to you tell this French Open mixed doubles <laughs> final story again, because <laughs> the very first time I heard it, it blew my mind. I did not know that happened. When's the first time you heard it? I don't... It was an interview you did with somebody, and I can't remember who it was. Um, I listen to so many interviews, I, I get them all yeah, mixed up yeah, in my yeah. head. Yeah, so, but... So <laughs> If, if you think in terms of, one, you're, you're still pretty much representing the race, um, two, angry black woman syndrome, um, three, you don't want to upset the apple cart or make it be about race when something happens because people think when uh, a black person has been besmirched, their, their go-to thing is race. So there's a lot of things, you know, that that are are in you that you have to decide how are you going to deal with it. And clearly, as you can tell from my tone, that had this been going on now, it'd be a whole nother story. Right, right, right. I might be in jail, but whatever. <laughs> um, so, so it's a mixed doubles, and and here's the other thing: it's a mixed doubles match. His partner, um, they are kicking our butts. We are not playing well, and it is just almost. I'm almost like embarrassed because we're playing so poorly. And um, and at some point during the match, uh, 
he had a like a, an outburst on the far side of the court, not anywhere near me. And everybody's like, what the heck is going on? So now it's, um, we are seated on the side that is closest to the gate where the athletes enter the court. And, and we are going to get up and go behind the umpire's chair to the other side. So that means when my opponents get up, when he and Barbara get up, they're going to come towards the side where the, where you exit, right? Where you enter the court. And as he, the score is, we're down a set in five, two. So it's basically over. You know, so now I'm mad when I go to sit down on that changeover and knock over my own my own water bottle, which is nowhere near him on the other side of the court. So we're just sitting there, and as he gets up, he comes behind the umpire's chair to head towards their side of the court, and he leans down and shouts at me. And I'm like thinking, what the? I'm like. Okay, first of all, y'all kicking our behinds. Why are you yelling at me? Mm-hmm. And because Borg was going to play next for the men's final, um, the photographers and media had all gotten to in their space behind the um, umpire's chair. So there was a lot more of them that would ordinarily be there for a final, mixed doubles final, because they were saving their space for the men's final that was coming. So... My thought was, oh, I'm not standing for this. And so I walked to the fence. And that's where the tournament director for the WTA said, if you walk off, then it's going to reflect badly on you because nobody else knows what's going on. Meanwhile, the crowd is booing because could y'all get this mixed doubles out so we could get booed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's all we don't know what's going on, but get out. Just, could y'all finish so we could get on to more? Wow. Or whoever was in the final. And so she said, but you have to go back out there and you have to play. And, you know, she said, I'm, I'm here in the tunnel. I didn't hear anything. I can't say anything. So then um, I went back out and I played. We played, we won two more games or whatever. And then at the handshake, I really just wanted to spit in his face, right? Mm. But I didn't. Because, again, I'm like, okay, you're representing your race. You this, you that. And so, so that was that. So when reporters asked me about it, I kind of poo-pooed it. Oh, no, not, yeah, you know, because I don't want to be that girl. So, right, right. Um, so that was that. It's just tough um, listening to what, you know, and not that people don't endure things today, but I, I think people felt like they had a license to act that way yeah. back then. And it's just. Well, it's you just, know what it is. It's privilege. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've talked about it. We mm-hmm. know it. We know it. Yeah, and, and I was told when I complained, because at that time you had to complain to the men, and their, their, their thing says, well, you knocked over your water bottle, so you might have inadvertently caused the problem. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, see, that's just, see, well, what I will say is, is this, Leslie, I just thank you for the fact that you had to endure those things, because, again, I feel like the things that you had to endure have then set the stage for, again, your Venuses, your Serenas, your your Cocos. I mean, it's what has made this world at least improved as it relates to the African-American experience. So so thank you. I just want to make sure that that gets put out there because, like I said, folk, young folks just don't, I mean, they recognize, but then they don't recognize. And I feel like it's these types of stories that really bring it home when you're really talking about just upfront, just just racism and just ignorance. And and the other thing that, that kind of goes along with that was, you know, Althea broke the color barrier in the 50s. And and so people sort of think, well, why did it take until me winning in 81 for somebody to to win a tournament? Like, what happened? And they forget that there was a token system that, okay, each year you can send us your one or your two black players. We don't want all of them, just your one or your two. Right. So grown up under knowing that that was the system, it just was more pressure to... Don't screw this up. You know, now kids have grown up that are like Coco. She's never known the world without Venus and Serena as champions. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. right? I didn't think I was going to see this in my lifetime. Um, So in my win for life training, I always make sure to put things in a historical context for athletes. So when they start complaining about things, I'm like, uh, 
hello. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, um, you, you need to come a little bit better than that. You know? That's right. That's right. And, and Leslie, talk to our listeners a little bit more about the, the Win for Life. So it's, it's, um, it's all about developing the life skills that you need to navigate off the court. Mm-hmm. And it came out of a couple of things. But one, as people were becoming hyper-focused on developing champions on the court and, you know, homeschooling, second mortgages on house, um, all kind of coaching programs and what have you, I was finding, and, and with tennis, it's pretty, people are pretty territorial. So if they had a charge, they would tolerate bad behavior from that person so they could keep them in their stable, so to speak. Right. And I, mm, that's not preparing them for life because that's not how life works. And if they do blow up like other kids want to do, um, they need to be ready because when I had all of my, my successes, I was ready. I was a college graduate. I was articulate. I knew how to give an interview. I had been trained how to deal with the sponsors and everything. So, so for me, so I was confident as a rookie player off the court. I was not confident on the court. So now we have the opposite of athletes confident on the court but no skills off the court. So my passion and my give back is to put them through a series of challenges so they can develop and be empowered. And I truly believe that when you feel better about yourself and situations off the court, you'll perform better on the court. Right. Yeah, That's absolutely. Right. You know, and, and it came from a couple of things. Like I worked corporately as a brand, as a global marketing person with the tour sponsor. And every now and then I would go to functions or even as a player going to functions, I would always be one of one or two people of color at the function. And sometimes I would see young people of color at the function, but they're not working the room. They're just isolated in the corner or isolated with whoever they came with. And I was like, oh no, you got to leverage this opportunity. You got to work that room. So the the people who are the movers and shakers, they know who you are because it's all about relationships, particularly in our sport. And um, so that was one thing that I saw was lacking. I also, in working behind the scenes, each week I would show up to work at a different tournament and they'd say, hey, this is Buffy. He saw, he's the cameraman's niece, and she's going to be there to answer the phone to say, WTA tournament, WTA tournament. She don't have any skills, but she's got connections and relationships. So I wanted to develop a group of uh, young people that if an opportunity came up, they would, I could say, how many do you want? So that was another reason for developing uh, some of the Win for Life um, training. And I also was seeing there was a lot of... Uh, misinformation that people were getting and wanted to dispel dispel that myth and teach you know like um i've been doing a couple of webinars on how to be recruited these are things that your athletes should be doing um and this is how they should be looking at it so um it's it's been rewarding and it it really started probably 20 years ago when Mm -hmm. i was supposed to when I was invited to bring some athletes down to Australia and the bottom line was they were ready tennis wise to play in the kids day. But I'm like, y'all not going to go down there and mess up my record. <laughs> <laughs> y'all not going to, y'all not going to embarrass me. Right. So really when it began, I wanted boom. When somebody says, well, because pyramid tennis that sent me to Australia helped me raise the money to send, to go with them to Australia. And so that's when we, I really sort of formalized <clears throat> what I was doing. And so by the end of it, those five ladies, you know, some of them, I could just send them anywhere. Go down to the mayor's. We're going to, in New York City, we're going to get an award. Go pick that up and give the speech. Okay, coach, no problem. Um, you know, they knew, uh, you know, this thing starts at two o'clock. Okay, I know you'll be there at 145. I don't have to tell you. Um, that's right. You know, so, so that was, that's what I do. And that's what I love doing. 
And that's so important because, like you said, I don't know that the emphasis is always enough on the life skills that are needed versus, you know, especially when you're an athlete or you're a performer or something like that, you spend so much time just focusing in on your craft Mm -hmm. that, you know, you kind of miss out on some of these life skills. I want to transition this to kind of our last segment of the interview, which is, you know, you have lived through, I mean, you saw Althea, you you lived your time on the tour, and, you know, we are in a different time now with African-Americans, African-Americans, and people of color in tennis, and I'm just very interested in your perspective. How do you think things are now? Where can things continue to be better? You've uh, mentioned your coach, Bob Ryland, who we unfortunately lost this year, you know, You know, we know he leaves a tremendous legacy that maybe many of our listeners are not aware of. And obviously, we've had this whole Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and we have people of truly stature in the game now, which is Serena's and Venus's and and Coco Golf's, Naomi Osaka. You know, what do you think about, you know, the efforts they're doing in terms of, um, you know, creating a positive message uh, in the world of tennis for people of color? So, first of all, I would like to say, on behalf of all Black people, that when we say diversity and inclusion, all Black folks ain't broke, all Black (laughs) people aren't impoverished, all Black people aren't from underserved neighborhoods. That's right. So, the first thing we have to do is get people to understand that that's not so, because that people assume that all the work that I do is with poor black kids. I, I never said that. I never said anything, right? So mm-hmm. that's just in terms of people trying to help their own lack of knowledge um, shows through. So I feel honored that Coco, Naomi, um, Francis, that they're able to speak out because we're here to stay in this sport. They're not wondering, they're not worried, oh, I hope this doesn't mess it up for the next generation. They're able to say, y'all need to check yourselves and improve this for the next generation. And I like that. In fact, I love it that they're able to be that bold because young folks ain't having it. And and the, the other thing is, you know, something all like if, if my situation at the French Open had jumped off now, oh, well, <laughs> you know? so, so it's really easy to get a message out. And that's, that's important. And right. even in getting the message out, some of the work that I do with, with, um, with, with Win for Life is to make sure you're clear about what your message is. And you need to be passionate about it. Don't be lip service. Like we know Naomi is passionate. Right. Right. People can see BS. So don't just say something just to say it. And I guess for me, the biggest change for me in all of this has been. I no longer work to make white people feel comfortable about race. Mm -hmm. I don't do that anymore. That was a heavy baggage to carry. I don't. I just I just don't. The other thing I don't do, it's not my job to explain why something has happened or the history of racism. That's not my job either. If I'm not important enough for you to know, then you've said a lot right then and there. So I think me included, a lot of people have just changed how how they deal. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to make people uncomfortable purposefully, but I'm gonna tell you the real deal. So when you ask me a question, you need to be ready. <laughs> no longer, no longer am I thinking, oh, I don't want to mess it up for the next person, or are they gonna? Right. I, I'm not an angry black woman. Sometimes I'm a black woman who is angry, based right. on what it's happened, and that's something very different. Complete, completely, completely with you. So I don't know, you know, that's that's just and 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 I and I think the other thing. What I find with young people, especially, um, some people have felt like they've only known, some of them 
before Trump only knew they grew up with Barack Obama as their president. Right. Mm-hmm. That's they right. A post-racial world and that everything was fine. And then they hit a certain age or they went for a certain job or or at some benchmark in their life, you know, they got pulled over because they were driving a car. They realized, oh, it's not a post-racial world. And I think we do our young people a disservice. And part of the whole George Floyd situation was a great wake-up call to make sure we've all had the talk with our kids, but also to understand there are a lot of stereotypes that are out there. And if you're not having a conversation about them, it's hard to dispel them because I worked with some athletes and it was like the Rainbow Coalition. And I had each of them talk about their stereotype. And so the black one said, uh, you know, they always think I play basketball and, you know, and give me crap about that, about my tennis. And then a Hispanic kid said, they always ask me if I eat beans. That's <laughs> terrible. Uh, you know, so, but as they all had the comfort to talk to me about it, as they all relayed everything, you could see them like, oh, you have something too? You have something too? Mm-hmm. But my favorite of all of them was, um, and this was during the time, I think the ESPN spelling bee had just happened. And he said, he's a, he was uh, Southeast in, Asian and Indian. And he said, I can't spell. He said, everybody thinks I can spell. I can't spell. I'm right. not a good speller. But it just was a situation in a moment where they could see, wow, everybody has something. Um, I need to be mindful of what I think about people. And the other part of it is that stereotype that they think about you, just like when that woman said to me, oh, you speak English so well, that was her thing. That was her baggage. Right. Not mine. That's so right. They say those things about you, oh, you can't spell, that's their stereotype in their head. So. Um, you know, I, I usually follow that up with, so you need to know what the negative stereotypes your ethnicity has and don't fall into them because right. you just know what they think. That's um, exactly right. So, oh, and, so yeah, and, and definitely what, what should our listeners know about your previous coach, Bob Ryland, um, and his legacy? Wow. Um, that he was a humble man. He was someone that I knew. He could tell stories about me being at Rockefeller Park in Cleveland, Ohio, when my mother lived there um, in the bassinet. Like, watch Leslie, I'm going to play. (laughs) 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 But I'm like, what? He says, yeah, I knew you when you would be in the bassinet. You'd be sitting there. So it wasn't until he was probably in his 70s or 80s post-coaching me that I really understood his legacy. But when you think about somebody who has been a certified teaching professional in a quote, white organization for 60 plus years, what, how did that happen? Um, um, That he, he integrated playing in the NCAA. So any player of color, male, who plays in an NCAA tennis tournament, you're standing on Bob Ryland's shoulder. He was a player coach winning his division championship. So if you're a black coach teaching and coaching in tennis, you're standing on Bob Ryland's shoulders. If you're a black professional tennis player earning a living in the sport, you're standing on Bob Ryland's shoulders. If you're a teaching pro at a club somewhere, you're standing on Bob Ryland's shoulders. So he impacted so many people in so many different ways and was a humble man um and imagine playing on a collegiate team and you have to go around the back in order to get fed while you're team you know imagine not being allowed to stay in the hotel or having to stay in the van or your teammates bringing food out to you so when athletes in college are complaining to me i'm like look this guy up let me tell you a couple of things <laughs> then right. oh okay coach um I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> exactly. I won't complain that we're going to Subway again. Yeah, you think? <laughs> um, so he was a really humble man. And that's a story and his legacy I wanted to continue to be told because there's so many sources of inspiration. And I think we need that. And the more we know about what has happened 
um, before us or those who had to endure so that we could be here and have what we have today, it's important. Absolutely. And 100 fantastic years that we had of, I of know. just yeah. incredible, just yeah. RIP and just uh, what a, what a just incredible, it, it, so much that has been done for our folk. It just, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, anyway. So sorry about that, Leslie. I had a moment there real mm -hmm. quick. Um, no, fine. Yeah. And Leslie, what I want to, what I want to say though, is for you specifically, just again, thank you for all that you have done. I listening to your story again, I can, I just, I, I, listeners, you need to understand this. Leslie, throughout all of these stories that she has told us, it has always been, she's come into something. She's had some level of improvement or growth that she had to fight through, whether it be not playing junior tournaments, whether it be, I mean, just so many things. But what did she do? She put in the work. She put in the work and she made things happen. And to me, that is just a message that needs to resonate across the board to all of our listeners and beyond. Make mm -hmm. sure you put in the work because, Leslie, you are just phenomenal. And just thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking with us. And is there anything that you just kind of want to share as kind of a last thought or, or just, just anything out there that you want to share with the listeners uh, um, um, as we're wrapping up here? Um, I, I, I guess you have to really decide why you do what you do. Yeah. And what your, what your end game is. And for me in my journey to the top of the women's game, Mine was I wanted to see how good I could be, and it. But I knew that at any moment that could end, and I may only be good enough to to be at USC or at Carnegie Mellon. But that was okay because I was going to work as hard as I could, um, and that things one aren't instant. Um, don't compare yourself to others because your path is different. It's your own path, and. Um, don't be afraid to be your authentic self. And yes. it took me a long time to get to that, but I think that's really, really important um, to be your authentic self. Um, and um, and, and that, that's what I also try and get my athletes to see in, in Win for Life. So. And Leslie, we thank you for being your authentic self. And, and, and to our listeners, these are the type of stories. This is why Brothers on Tennis exists. Mm -hmm. These are the type of stories that you may not hear, you know, on ESPN right. or some of your more uh, mainstream media uh, outlets. But these are some of the most important stories that you do need to hear. So we will continue to bring these to you. And we're just so thankful that Leslie shared some of her time with us. Uh, today. So continue to tune in. We'll be back with more and exciting interviews. And when tennis gets going again, we will be back front and center to talk about it. So with that, thank you again, Leslie Allen, for being with us today. To our listeners, as usual, this has been your boy Bryce. And this is your boy Isaac. And we are Brothers on Tennis. Everyone be safe. <laughs>